the tactics that they borrowed from the UDTs and Draper Kaufman were swimming in stealth and underwater demolition, secret deployments. You know, Draper's credo was never leave a man behind, which the, the SEALs still follow. To this day, the, the old guard of the SEALs called Draper the grandpappy bullfrog. An excerpt from today's guest, who's written an account of the demolition divers of World War II, which has been called a gripping, heart-racing, nail-biting masterpiece. Author Andrew Dubbins is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. We've launched a new Point of the Spear Originals video series on our YouTube channel, and the first episode, Lincoln's Last Hours, is streaming now. Few Americans alive today are unaware that our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, was assassinated while in office. It has been a part of American history textbooks for generations. But unanswered questions and little-known facts about his final hours remain, which are both revealing and disturbing. And it has been contended by forensic anthropologists that the president was actually dying months before the fatal shot which ended his life. Click the link in this episode's description to check it out. Welcome back. And before we get into the show, remember to click that follow button on the podcast to be notified of future fantastic guests like the author we're speaking with today. And thank you. Today's guest is an award-winning journalist and author based in Los Angeles. His work has appeared in Alta, Los Angeles Magazine, The Daily Beast, Slate, and other publications. He was named Journalist of the Year by the Los Angeles Press Club in 2021, and several of his narrative nonfiction stories have been optioned for film and television. His book is called Into Enemy Waters, a World War II story of the demolition divers who became the Navy SEALs. And author Andrew Dubbins joins us now. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Robert. Well, we're happy to have you. What sparked your interest in the demolition divers. Do you have a military background or your family have a military background? My grandfather served in World War II. He was a lieutenant commander up in the Aleutians flying PBYC planes, which is another forgotten chapter of World War II, and passed down some stories to my mom, little snippets about you know, losing more men to the weather than Japanese up there and being terrified every time he stepped into his cockpit. And, um, being lost at sea on a raft, but I never got to hear those stories from him myself. He he passed away about six days after I was born. Mm-hmm. So that really impressed on me that there's a timestamp to these stories. So in choosing my first book, that was on my mind. You know, we maybe have 20, 30 years left to to hear these stories from the participants. Yeah, and they're, they're all getting up there in age, that's for sure. A lot of the World War II veterans that I've worked with on my films have passed away, um, unfortunately. Yeah. And then as for the UDTs specifically, uh, it was on a visit to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, which I highly recommend for anyone with even a passing interest in World War II. I was walking through an exhibit on the Pacific Theater, and I saw a swim fin behind the glass display case, and it struck me as so out of place, you know, next to weapons and ammunition and read the description, saw it belonged to a member of the underwater demolition teams. And I've long been a student of World War II, but I'd never heard of the UDT. So 
started to read about them, you know, these elite combat swimmers who scouted our beaches ahead of allied landing forces, minimalist uniform of swim fins, dive mask, and reel of fishing line for measuring the water depth. So it fascinated me and uh, jumped in from there. Now, one of the leading figures during World War II was Draper Kaufman, mm-hmm. whose uh, methods became the basis for a lot of the SEAL training. Introduce us to Draper. Draper is a, a fascinating character and pioneer in naval warfare. His dad was a famous admiral, Admiral Reggie Kaufman, member of the Naval High Command, and, and Draper dreamt of being just like him, commanding destroyers, but he had terrible eyesight. So he did get into Annapolis, followed his dad's path into Annapolis, but didn't earn a commission into the Navy. Uh, so when World War II broke, broke out, he volunteered in France, driving ambulances on the front, then in the Royal Navy, defusing bombs during the Blitz. There were bombs, German bombs falling on the UK. Um, made his way back into the US Navy with the help of one of his dad's friends, Admiral Nimitz, and he was tapped to launch the first naval combat demolition unit, um, which would eventually evolve into the, the Navy SEALs. Um, started that at Fort Pierce, Florida, which is uh, now houses the Navy SEAL Museum right. and is where uh, Hell Week got its start. That was Draper Kaufman's innovation. Uh, and then in 44, deployed to the Pacific, where he was leading underwater demolition teams, including in their first major daylight reconnaissance of the war at Saipan, uh, then later at Iwo Jima and Okinawa. So he he had a long war, Draper Kaufman, um, and helped pioneer the, the Navy SEALs. Was he in at the beginning? I know they sort of began in the early 1960s, the SEALs. Was he in at the very beginning of the SEALs? He was not so... The SEALs borrowed tactics from a lot of these elite units of World War II, including the um, OSS Maritime Unit. I've written a piece for Alta about them, which were integrating more scuba equipment and assault tactics. Um, But the tactics that they borrowed from the UDTs and Draper Kaufman were swimming in stealth and underwater demolition, secret deployments. You know, Draper's credo was never leave a man behind, which the, the SEALs still follow. So to this day, the, the old guard of the SEALs called Draper the Grand Pappy Bullfrog. Um, so he is he's considered one of the first. Um, and, and the UDTs merged into the SEALs by, uh, by the 80s, but the, the, the SEALs' first deployments were in, were in Vietnam. Right. I've interviewed uh, several SEALs and uh, Ben Milligan, who wrote the uh, uh, Rising of the Navy SEALs book, talked to him about the early frogmen and how, sure. how they began in the in the 60s. Getting to the book, you wrote the book as a narrative nonfiction, and I've written narrative nonfiction myself, and it's a different way to approach history. And for people not expecting a narrative nonfiction book and more of a, a dry nonfiction history, it can be a minefield because you use dialogue, fictional dialogue. What made you choose that route to write the book? That's been my experience writing narrative nonfiction articles for the Daily Beast and Alta. Uh, and it's what I love to read personally. You know, some of my favorite military history or Boys in the Boat, Daniel James Brown, or 
Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken, everything Eric Larson is doing now. Um, yeah. yeah. So I enjoy it, you know, being with a character and um, getting into their heads. And um, that was my, uh, that's, that's how I wanted to tackle this book. Do you think you'll continue writing narrative, narrative nonfiction history books? I, I do. I think so. Um, I haven't decided whether that's going to be in the World War II space or if I want to try something totally different, but I, I, that's my passion. Now, you live in Los Angeles, and uh, I was thinking that you know, with, using that approach with the fictional dialogue is not too much of a leap into a screenplay. And did you write this also with an eye on potentially interesting a studio in this story? Well, the, the dialogue in the book is all nonfiction, either taken from um, participants or, or secondary sources. Um, as for the film, I don't have much involvement in that side of things, but I do think it would make a, a beautiful film. It's an angle on World War II we've never seen, you know, from underwater to use beautiful underwater cinematography and uh, plus the seals are world famous. And I think people would right. love to see how they um how they were developed i hope you're enjoying this episode next time we'll be discussing the 614th tank destroyer battalion of world war ii with author samuel de cortes who's written a new book on the all-black unit the racism actually became a bit less what i mean is that several of the white soldiers a lot of them had seen the segregated tank destroyers fight and they were impressed by the courage that they had displayed Many of the white soldiers after the war actually praised the black tank destroyers for what they had done. Several of them have said, like, we did not take the town, but they took the town. Another reason to click that follow button to be notified when the episode releases. And before we return to the conversation, if you're enjoying this story of the divers who became the Navy SEALs, check out our earlier program, The Rise of the Navy SEALs, with author and Navy SEAL Ben Milligan. Uh, the DNA... Uh, SEAL training comes from the preparations for D-Day. Hell Week comes from there. Um, all these sort of team building exercises that came from there it was all developed by, you know, the guy Draper Kaufman. I, I give probably, you know, one of the bigger sections of the book is devoted to Draper Kaufman, the reasons that he came up with Hell Week and the reasons he created training the way that he did and why that, that training still exists today. It's show 177 from season three, and you'll easily find it in our past episodes. Now, did you uh, interview some veterans of the UDT teams for your book? I did. I, I had a chance to speak with uh, George Morgan, a veteran of the unit. Uh, lives in Arizona. He's 95 years old now and was so gracious with his time and discussing the tactics of the, of the World War II UDTs. Um, also spoke with a couple... Uh, Frogmen from Korean War, um, similar tactics, deploying from speeding landing craft and uh, using a steel cord rope ring for pickups, uh, which was an innovation during World War II. They didn't want to slow the landing craft down because it would draw enemy fire. So they'd form a line in the water and hook their arms through a rope ring. And the momentum would tug them out of the water. And a guy in a rubber raft would pull them up, called the catcher. So wow. all very experimental tactics in World War II and, and Korea. Um, and then I used a lot of oral histories, um, places like the World War II Museum and National Museum of the Pacific War. They've been 
collecting these oral histories for the past few decades, and it's such a service. Um, they really do not get enough praise for for all the work they've been doing, these historians and volunteers to collect these oral histories. So I tracked down as many as I could find of the World War II UDTs and integrated their stories into the book. Did you uh, check the Veterans History Project as well? I did, yes. And the National Archives, I should also give a shout out to, um, has, a, has a massive, wonderful collection of these too. Yeah, yeah, because I use those resources for my book. There's some unbelievable interviews uh, on those sites that not many people have seen. I know, and I'm, I'm always struck um, by how sharp their memories often are. Um, I often get a kick that their wife is off camera sometimes. <laughs> interjecting <laughs> but um they're just i i had such a fun time listening to those and it's also you know that there's a twinge of sadness when you know that they've passed away and uh, yeah but but such a again credit to, to the people who've been collecting these the reason i laugh was because i'm in the midst of a vietnam project and i was interviewing some veterans of a naval unit uh, hc7 combat rescue uh, helicopter, a naval uh, squadron. And I was interviewing a veteran, and and his wife was there watching. And I stepped away to get something, and I heard her as I, as I left, his wife, the gentleman's wife, and, he's, and she said, you're talking too much. <laughs> and I came back. I said, don't worry, that's what we want. <laughs> you know? But, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, is there a mission that stands out uh, in your mind from, let's put it in uh, time frame of World War II, is there a mission that stands out of the UDT teams that really had an impact? I probably did the most research on Iwo Jima, and a uh, few people realized that the UDTs were pulling up in their ship uh, a couple days before the Marine landing, and their job was to scout the eastern beach approaches um, because they worried that the underwater incline was too steep and that our boats, our landing boats, would shipwreck on the shore. Oh. So water was frigid cold. They had to go in broad daylight, flat seas. A lot of times the swimmers were hoping for some choppy water so they could hide behind the crest of the waves, <laughs> but totally flat. And Mount Suribachi, you know, the Japanese were bunkered down and their plan was to hold fire until the marine landing but the udt fire support boats the gunboats they approached as if a wave of infantry landing craft and the japanese mistook them for the marine landings and they opened fire and it was a cauldron of fire the swimmers had to dive underneath the enemy bullets you had our gunboats just getting pounded it's a famous gunboat battle of world war ii suffered really heavy casualties but um held the line and and it was a success um they were able to scout the beach approaches collect some black sand from the shores of iwo jima and create a nautical map for the for the marines and um, there were some shipwrecks you look at those pictures of the marines unloading on the sands of iwo jima you see a lot of like jeeps and uh, yeah. boats floundering in the back because it was a it was rough ocean um, but they they put a lot of men ashore, which is the the goal of an amphibious landing. Now, what would these UDT teams do after their initial 
assault reconnaissance patrol, what, would they pull back or would they become part of the infantry? What, what would they do? Sometimes they were off to the next mission, some teams. Some teams stayed and they um, helped clear the beaches. You know, when you had, in the case of uh, Iwo Jima, it's interesting, they collected that black sand and this was an error that Draper Kaufman admitted to. The sand was very coarse and, and a Marine told him the sand should be coarse enough to accommodate wheeled vehicles. Turns out wheeled vehicles need um, fine sands, not coarse sand. And a lot of our jeeps were getting stuck in the black sand. So it fell to the UDTs, not to blow up jeeps, but to, to clear beach wrecked landing craft, you know, the wooden plywood boats. Um, and uh, as well as to continue to scout other beaches um, on Iwo Jima and in, in other missions, because uh, we wanted to continue to land um, at different areas. Right. And oftentimes, <laughs> at Okinawa, you read stories, but they, you would uh, swimming ashore and realizing we don't have this beach yet. And they'd have to get out of there quickly. Um, so they continued their scouting work and also on invasion day would ride out ahead of the Marines and lead them into their assigned beach, which was, of course, invaluable because they'd been swimming in the day before. Right, right. Now, is the Pacific Theater the only theater where the UDT teams operated? So the NCDUs, Naval Combat Demolition Units that I mentioned that trained out of Fort Pierce, they were over at Normandy, Omaha Beach and Utah Beach and in the south of France. They merged into the UDTs after the invasion of Europe. Of course, they were no longer needed for scouting missions. Um, so the UDTs had been developing after Kwajalein and uh, again, the first big reconnaissance mission for them was it was at Saipan. So UDTs did live in the in the Pacific, trained at Maui, which was another Draper Kaufman was the lead training instructor at Maui. Mm -hmm. About some amazing experimental equipment and drone boats they were trying out. It was all this was all brand new. There'd never been a combat swim unit. So it was a lot of learning on the fly. They learned to waterproof their fuses by putting them in a condom and um, you know they'd have to cut the their own rubber fins rubber fins and dive masks so common now they were brand new at the time they were only used by spear fishermen very niche sport hmm. uh, so they were you know, tinkering with their equipment the the reel of fishing line dropping a reel of fishing line to measure the ocean depth and had to invent a floating reel Draper had the idea at Saipan to use these rubber rafts that the officers would, would use to mm -hmm. ride out ahead of the swimmers and direct the covering fire, which turned out to be a disaster, drew a bunch of, bunch of fire from the Japanese. And uh, so it was all very experimental and, and Maui was something of a, a laboratory. Did uh, other countries have a similar type of unit in World War II? The Italians were very ahead of their time. On, on combat swimming and diving, they introduced uh, something called the pig boat, which was a, a manned torpedo. A couple guys rode this torpedo horseback with just their heads sticking <laughs> out above the water into um, the Mediterranean, targeting British ships. And there was a detachable warhead at the front of the torpedo. They detached the warhead, dived down using this primitive scuba equipment. He had a lot of accidents from oxygen poisoning and uh, 
malfunctioning equipment and they'd attach the warhead to the hull of uh these these ships and had a lot of success um so much so that the british who'd kind of poo-pooed <laughs> these underwater uh force they deployed deployed their own divers oh they did um, to to uh to guard against the italian unit that, that's a interesting niche of the war and then i write a little bit about the japanese they had some ad hoc uh, combat swimmers, more so suicide swimmers, trying to to blow up our ships. Uh, not wow. a very organized effort, but they were they were planning a big unit called the Fukuria in um, to to guard against Operation Olympic, our invasion of, and, and that was a bunch of teenagers, kind of a a bizarro version of the UDT, who were preparing to dive under our landing craft and stab them with a pole charge and blow themselves up and their fellow swimmers. And a lot of the, the Japanese um, instructors thought this is such a waste of life. You know, they, at that point in the war, even, even the, some of the officers were saying, look, why are we doing this? Um, yeah. And never, never was used. It was a hypothetical, but they were training thousands of teenagers as co combat suicide swimmers. That's interesting because that's sort of like what they developed the Japanese. They're flying bomb, which uh, instead of a plane being a kamikaze, they'd actually get into what looked like a bomb and launch off an aircraft as the flying bomb and, you know, strike American and allied uh, ships. As well as suicide torpedoes. Uh, they, uh, they were using those. I read a little bit about Ulithi. There was successful attack at Alithi and these manned suicide torpedoes. Crazy, crazy <laughs> suicide torpedoes. Yeah, the Chitin. There's an interesting book on it, and yeah, they were they were gearing up with this the torpedoes and kamikaze planes for the invasion of Japan. I, I write a bit about that. Is there something that you'd like to leave our audience with the legacy of these divers and the book? Yeah, it, it, interesting. The the reason it's really not well known outside military circles is it was a top secret unit. Um, Draper Kaufman had in, instituted a media blackout, which meant no reporters could write stories about the UDT. Um, and his reason was very noble and correct in that he didn't want the Japanese developing a countermeasure, something as simple as some mines on the seafloor that could have exploded during the mission and put all our swimmers out of commission. So it was kept top secret all through the war. The only downside of that was the public knew nothing about them. When they came home, people didn't know what the UDTs were. They said, is that like the Marines or the Navy? So they never really got, they missed out on the publicity that more famous units of World War II got. And so I hope that this book um, reminds people of the, the contributions of the UDTs and the demolition men. And I hope it's a page turner for readers. The book is called Into Enemy Waters, a World War II story of the demolition divers who became the Navy SEALs. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Robert. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Next time, we'll be discussing the 614th Tank Destroyer Battalion of World War II with author Samuel de Cortes, who's written a new book on the all-black unit. The racism actually became a bit less. What I mean is that several of the white soldiers, a lot of them had seen these segregated tank destroyers fight, and they were impressed by the courage that they had displayed. Many of the white soldiers after the war actually praised the black tank destroyers for what they had done. Several of them had said, like, we did not take the town, but they took the town. Another reason to click that follow button to be notified when the episode releases. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or click the follow button. Be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.